This is a special edition of the RTI Press Pass powered by Rocky Top Insider. Here are your hosts, Jack Foster and Ryan Shumper. Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Rocky Top Insider Press Pass special edition podcast. I'm your host, Jack Foster, alongside Ryan Shepard, coming at you on a Monday afternoon. Ryan, it's uh, it's a good Monday so far, man. I'm fired up for this week. It's a big week for Tennessee baseball, and man, we're just, it's the basically my first full week out of school, and I just couldn't be more fired up. How are you doing on this Monday afternoon? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, a lot to do, a lot to get done work-wise and uh, everything else-wise uh, before hitting the road tomorrow morning to Hoover. So a uh, busy Monday, but uh, doing well. Can't complain. That's right. It's like, you know, that before you travel, it's always a busy day to try and get all your ducks in a row and all your things in order, you know. So I know the feeling, but yes, big week for Tennessee baseball as the SEC tournament begins this week. Tennessee baseball playing on Tuesday against Texas A&M. We are going to look into Tennessee's Hoover game against Texas A&M. Talk about Hoover, all of that good stuff later on in the podcast, probably the second half of the podcast. But as we always do on these podcasts, Ryan, we have to recap a little bit Tennessee's series. It was the final regular season series of Tennessee season. They went into South Carolina, pick up their first road series win, a massive series win as it relates to their you know, chances of hosting an NCAA regional, which is obviously the goal for the Vols right now. They finished with 16 SEC wins, now have series wins over South Carolina, Vanderbilt, and Kentucky, with the former South Carolina arguably being their most significant series win to date, given it was on the road and at such a crucial time, right? Yeah, it was. And uh, I think you're, you probably hit the nail on the head there that it's their, you know, maybe not their best series win, but their most crucial series win because it's their only series win on the road. And that keeps them in the conversation to host a regional. Uh, it was a very bad weekend for Tennessee elsewise in the regional hosting, given the fact that Alabama swept Ole Miss, Auburn swept Missouri. So both those teams uh, are still right in the thick of it, if not sitting in a little bit better spot than Tennessee. So that's going to be interesting. I mean, we talked about it last week of how I said, typically, you know, the SEC tournament, there's not a ton taken from that. It's kind of like the SEC basketball tournament where the NCAA tournament doesn't necessarily take a ton from that. I think this week it might be different because you just have so many teams. Kentucky, South jam. Carolina. Yeah. Yes, that's the word I was going to use. It's a log jam. There's five of them. South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, and Auburn, who all have very similar resumes competing for, you know, I don't know what's going to be two or three, I, I would guess, regional uh, hosts. So uh, Kentucky, I think, is, you know, I say they're competing in there. They had the same conference record as Tennessee, but with their RPI, being number two, you know, I would just be shocked if they didn't host. So I would almost elevate them into a different class. Um, but it's going to be right in the thick of it. And Tennessee, it's going to, at least for their sake, uh, I think it's going to, would bolster their their chances a lot more if they can win a couple more games this week at Hoover uh, to be at home and not have to go on the road that first week uh, of the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think it certainly matters. And when you look at, you know, a lot of these teams in this log jam, they're all playing on Tuesday in single elimination games. Um, so Tuesday is such a massive day for all these teams, you know, because if you get bounced day one in Hoover, especially if you're Tennessee against a A&M team that is definitely not in the host conversation or um, even South Carolina, for that matter, against Georgia, too. You know, that's just going to look really bad uh, 
Um, but yes, Tennessee has a big week coming up. As I mentioned, they're up to number 16 in the RPI too, after a top 15 road series win, of course. So big, big series win for Tennessee. And it started off with a dominant pitching performance from Andrew Lindsay, the best pitching performance from a Tennessee starter this season, certainly in SEC play. Eight and a third. He could have gone a complete game, but didn't get the last two outs of the game. But man, retired his final 17 batters. Only three hits given up. Of course, zero runs. You know, through 103 total pitches. He shut down South Carolina. It was more than dominant. I th- there's not a word you could describe you could, you know, call this. Th- th- there's not a word extreme enough to talk about how great Andrew Lindsay was on the mound for Tennessee Friday night and you know, it was just a big, big step for Tennessee going on to win the series. Yeah, I mean, it was the best outing from really any Tennessee pitcher all season. And uh, you mentioned the numbers, which were, you know, glaring and fantastic. Only three, well, three base runners. And on mm-hmm. top of that, this was a ball that kind of got hit back up the middle at him. He probably should have let go and let a middle infielder make the play. So he kind of batted it down, but couldn't make the play in time. There was another... Uh, infield hit in there so it was really one hit that got to the outfield and it was just kind of a flare to center field we threw just one pitch with a runner in scoring position uh you know in the middle of that outing I can't remember what the I guess it wasn't even the middle to end his outing the Christian games were running together but uh he retired yeah, like... something like what 18 19 straight batters at one point in there and just got into yeah, seven, his last 17 yeah Right. 17, yeah. It, it was Dolander, who I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, who had retired, I want to say, like 12, 13 straight batters, and Christian Moore had an error that kind of disrupted that. But, yeah, I mean, he was absolutely brilliant. He said it was very heavy. Two seam and cutter that he was working with. He said he threw one changeup that wasn't even close. He sprinkled in a couple curveballs uh, that I think he described as were competitive. So it, it was largely those two pitches, his best two pitches, the two seam fastball and the cutter. And he was just – he was dominant. It was – Fantastic, and like you said, uh, I think he easily could have gotten those final two outs for Tennessee and gotten a, a nine-inning complete game shutout. Yeah, and uh, you know, I can't remember if it was you or Ben McKee who asked him after the game. It was, you know, what was your thought process when Tony Vitello came to take you out of the game with only two more outs to get a complete game shutout? You know, he obviously any pitcher is going to experience some old man, if you will. But you know, Andrew Lindsay's not a guy who's going to be angry or anything about that, but. Yeah, Andrew Lindsay just you can't get much better than that man, and this is just so encouraging for Tennessee to have this kind of start from Andrew Lindsay, knowing that he can be, you know, a a top pitcher in the league with performances like this. We've kind of seen it progress for Lindsay over the course of the season, where you know he kind of got integrated into that starting role step by step. Saw him go a hundred plus last week, and then now everything has kind of reached the pinnacle, if you will, for Andrew Lindsay. Yeah, definitely, and I think there has been a little. Tennessee has been cautious with him because, you know, he didn't pitch last year. He's a Charlotte transfer, but he didn't pitch in 2022 at Charlotte. He pitched in 2021 and then took uh, the season off last year. So I think there was – concerns is the right word, but just wanted to be cautious and not putting too much right. on his arm uh, over the course of the season, not have what happened to Drew Beam uh, last season. So uh, that was really encouraging. And, I mean, yeah, you looked at it. Late the seventh inning, it was late in the game, and that fastball was still, you know, 97, 96. Uh, which is, you know, about what it tops out at. I'd say, you know, it sits probably 94, 96, can touch 97. Maybe you've seen it touch 98 a time or two this year. But as deep as he got into the game and still having the velocity on that fastball, I think that was a really good sign and uh, kind of shows that that caution has probably been 
boded well for Tennessee, and certainly it was a little bit more caution that they did uh, take him out there in the ninth inning. You mentioned probably the most interesting or you know most fun stat of Lindsey's outing is that he only threw one pitch with a runner in scoring position. Well, he also faced the minimum for every single inning except the first. From the second yeah. inning on, he faced the minimum thanks to a double play in the second and then a pickoff in the third. So, yeah, it just doesn't get much better than that. South Carolina had no answers for him. Offensively for Tennessee, didn't need much because of Andrew Lindsay's outing, but they certainly got some from Hunter Inslee. was 4-5 at the plate with three RBI singles. And then Dylan Drowling had a two-run homer to um, you know re- put Tennessee ahead five runs. They kind of coasted to the win. Didn't score again after the sixth inning, but Hunter Inslee really, really consistent, and Dylan Drowling had a big swing for the Vols, probably the biggest two highlights, if you will, from Tennessee's offensive performance. Definitely, and I mean, we've talked about it at length, but just how the outfield has turned into a question mark or a weakness into a strength with a lot of guys we didn't necessarily expect to be doing that. And by far your best outfielder, Jared Dickey, did not play in game one of the ser- series. That's why Dylan Dryling got the start in left field. As baseball usually goes, the ball immediately found him on the first play, kind of a hard-hit liner he made a nice play on. But he goes two for four with a walk, has the big opposite field two-run homer. Griffin Merritt was joking with him after the game that, you know, it was the first opposite field home run that he's ever hit. Uh, that he didn't pull Hunter Rensley four or five. And I think what was glaring about that, it was the three separate RBI singles. Three yeah, and one RBI exactly. singles. And he just delivered in the clutch over and over again for Tennessee. And he did it in different ways. He First pitch he saw, he lined the ball opposite way to right field for a single. He fell down 0-2 in the count and then uh, took a 1-2 pitch up the middle for an RBI single. And then he Pulled a grounder that uh, the South Carolina third baseman made a really nice diving stop on, uh, but the runner was on third. Inslee was able to beat it out for an infield single that scored a run. So he was really consistent. And then Christian Scott certainly didn't have a ton of highlights in that game, uh, but also went one of two uh, with two uh, walks and a hit by pitch. So the Tennessee's three starting outfielders uh, reached base 11 times in what I guess was trying to do some quick math here, 15 at bats. Uh, and uh, Griffin Merritt added uh, another one of those hits and hit by pitch too. Obviously, he was in the designated hitter spot, but another one of those guys that we've talked about being in the outfield mix over the course of the season, and uh, they they were really really good for Tennessee at the plate and kind of continue to to be the strength for Tennessee as a whole. But I think especially offensively is the one that's been really surprising. Yes, and Jared Dickey went on to you know start and sun in Game Three of the series, Game Two of the Saturday doubleheader, and. You know, you pinch hit in game one of the doubleheader. So Jared Dickey got action this weekend. We expect him to be a full go from here on out. So my question is kind of void with Jared Dickey being back, but did your perception change at all with Tennessee's outfield depth defensively? We know if they've, we, they can do offensively. Maybe we haven't seen Hunter Inslee come up in the clutch this much in a single game, but we know Dylan Dryling can do this, right? But defensively, with Dylan Dryling making that play on the first out of the game, we've seen what Hunter Inslee can do in center. You know what Christian Scott is. Did your perception change at all with Tennessee's outfield and you know feeling comfortable if someone like Jared Dickey is absent? No, not really. I mean, it, you know, Dryling made a nice play, and he didn't make any mistakes in the two games he started out in left field, but it also wasn't like he just had an abundance of balls hitting there. And, I, you know, I still think just because defense is a weakness for him doesn't mean he's – or a liability and I think that's kind of the case it's going to be shaky and you know I feel really good about Hunter Inslee and Christian Scott and center and right going into the weekend obviously nothing changed there uh so I wouldn't say a ton you know I thought that that's weakness for whoever you have in left field but I didn't think it was going to be like something crippling for Tennessee so I guess that's why I say that and the one thing I will be interested to see 
I was surprised when Jerry Dickey started game three. He started in left field, not DH. My memory serves. I'm sure I'm probably forgetting uh, an instance or two. He, I can remember one ball being hit to him, which was a single out to left field. And boy, did he lob the ball. He lobbed the ball back in. Now, the runner wasn't going to second, so he didn't have, like, you know, it wasn't like he just conceded a base or anything. There wasn't a whole lot of mustard on the throw. So, that's something to watch. It'll be interesting to see if he is. Again, I assume he'll start Tuesday and the rest of the way all season. I'll be curious to see if it is in left field or at DH because it – the one time is, you know, his arm and that right shoulder and his injured got tested. He certainly didn't put too much uh, pressure on it, I, sh- I guess would be the right way of phrasing that. That's a good observation. That's a good thing to keep in mind moving forward as well. And then, of course, as I mentioned, Andrew Lindsay's outing, it got a messy see pitcher of the week. No surprise there. He was the obvious choice given how dominant and shut down he was on Friday night. Moved to Saturday, Tennessee, South Carolina played a doubleheader because weather caused so many delays and time changes, postpones. For this weekend, weather has just been a constant issue for Tennessee over the past couple of weeks, and it prevailed yet again this weekend in Columbia, South Carolina. But they got the doubleheader in game one, a fascinating game. Another gem from a Tennessee pitcher, Chase Dolander, the dominant he's been all season. Maybe it wasn't Andrew Lindsay level, but man, Chase Dolander was incredible. Throwing strikeouts left and right, struck out 13 of his 20 batters faced. He threw 13 Ks and in five innings. I mean, that is just insane you know he, he was so so good in 15 outs five innings he get 13 were via strikeout that's how good chase dolander was gave up a solo homer in the first and a hit by pitch but then went on to retire 10 consecutive until as ryan mentioned earlier in the podcast christian moore air allowed a base runner to reach but for all intents and purposes he only really allowed three base runners and the final of which was a one-out single in the sixth called for, for the end of his day. We'll get into that decision from Tony Vitello to pull Chase Dolander at 82 pitches. But first, just your thoughts on Chase Dolander's dominant day in Columbia. Yeah, I mean, you said he, you know, maybe wasn't as dominant as Andrew Lindsay. I think he was just as dominant as Andrew Lindsay. And it's just different because the way they pitch, and Dolander's going to throw more pitches naturally and get deeper into counts. So, uh, and granted, he was just at 82 pitches when he got pulled, but He's not going to go quite as deep as Andrew Lindsay, but in his own way and what he does well, he was just as dominant. And, and yeah, Braylon Wimmer hit that home run in, I believe, the first pitch first of the inning. second at bat of the game. Oh, yeah. yeah, in the first inning. And uh, he, but after that, I mean, he was just absolutely dominant. I, that first inning was uh, a little rocky. I think he went strikeout, home run, strikeout, hit by pitch, strikeout. Uh, but from there, I mean, he just got cruise control and he talked about it. After, he said it's the first time all year he had all four of his pitches he felt like he had great command of and could throw for strikes. The fastball was really good, as it typically is, and he just had South Carolina off balance the whole entire day. And that was, you know, it's I was laughing about it with somebody that we'll get the final numbers, five and one-third, two earned runs. You think, you know, it was, that's, a, that's a good start, but that's nothing special. That was by that was 2022 Chase Dolander who we saw on yes. Saturday. It was absolutely phenomenal, by far his best start of the season. And again, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about next, him getting up the earned run uh, when he gave up that single in the sixth inning, and then him getting the loss. It kind of felt like a lot of his season, where a lot of the last half of his season, where it feels like his outing was better than the numbers indicate, and it feels like he just keeps on getting better and better, start after start, especially his back half of SEC play. Mississippi State was kind of the one exception when he was picking, but pitching with a fever. 
but it's hard not to feel good about where Chase Dolander is heading into the postseason. It's really going after his, his most of the starts for the last month, but I think particularly well, what was definitely his best of the season in Columbia on Saturday. Yeah, as I mentioned, 82 pitches, five and a third, give up a one-out single. I I did not think things were beginning to decline for Chase Dolan. I, at that moment in time, I still felt very confident Chase Dolander was going to get out of the sixth inning just fine and probably end up going a complete game. I don't know if Tennessee would have won, given the chance, given the fact it was a one-to-one ball game. Tennessee's offense hadn't produced much of anything in game one of the doubleheader. So South Carolina very well, very well could have won the game, even if Chase Dolander threw all seven innings. Not saying that. But this certainly didn't help matters at all because Tony Vitello goes to Chase Burns, and you think Chase Burns has been so dominant out of the bullpen. Don't understand why Chase Dolander is leaving the game at only 82 chip pitches, but hey, Chase Burns is coming in, so it's going to be okay. It is not okay. It did not work out. It backfired <laughs> tremendously for Tony Vitello as five straight hits ensued for South Carolina before Burns could record an out. South Carolina scored five runs off those five hits. It wasn't good at all. They were just teeing off on Chase Burns. And, you know, I, I said why. I said audibly and when I was watching on television. I said why when Chase Dolander was leaving the game. It's hard to be angry if you're a Tennessee fan with Chase Burns coming out of the bullpen, given how great he's been in that role. But still, I, and it's easy to play couch coach now because of how it happened, you know, how, how things went. But I still don't understand it, even if Burns had done well. I just don't get it at all. Your takes on this change, you know, this pitching change in the game, this decision for Tony Vitello. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because we talk about Tony Vitello and the pitching pitching changes, pitching moves. You know, it's usually that he's leaving the pitcher in a little too long. And this one, I think he was trying to avoid that, get ahead of that. And, you know, we asked him about it uh, after the games, and he kind of tiptoed around it. Uh but I think the gist of what he was getting at was we have all these two playing two seven inning games. Obviously, Andrew Lindsay was great, so they didn't have to use any of their bullpen guys or their made bullpen guys on Friday. It was kind of like, you know, if you lose, you're going to kick yourself for wasting all these arms. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you. I, I thought Chase Dolander was, was just cruising. I mean, he made really right before he got pulled one of the only mistakes he made all game with an 0-2 pitch. He left over the plate and got lined in the center field for a single. But at 82 82- pitches he had just been so dominant and like I said earlier in control of all four pitches you know I thought that yeah, at the time I thought Tennessee should have kept him in the game um and, and obviously in hindsight it, it feels that way even more so though I will say that there was no I don't think there was anyone and this is kind of to your point it wasn't like anyone was ripping the decision to go to Chase Burns but you know the fact that Chase Burns gave up five straight hits and, and it was 6-1 by the time Tennessee recorded another out I don't think anyone could have possibly foreseen it going that poorly uh, for Tennessee in the sixth inning. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, Chase Burns has been their best bullpen arm. So, And Tony Vitello did say, like you just said a minute ago, that you know we'd hate to leave all our high-leverage guys in the bullpen having not thrown all weekend. And, and I get it, but I just didn't know if this is the right scenario. This is probably, of all pitching decisions, Tony Vitello is Tony Vitello is Tony Vitello on the beat for much longer than five years is this is probably the one to have backfired on him most because you have to take it you know in a, with a grain of salt w- when you're watching this game at this moment in time Tennessee hasn't won the series yet this is game two of the series this is a big game for Tennessee and the way that unraveled 
I thought that Tennessee was probably going to be cooked in game three because uh, ending a game like that, it takes tremendous, you know, just it takes a great mindset to overcome that, which Tennessee ultimately did. But in this moment, it backfired on Tony Vitell in such a big way, not only for the game, but for the series as a whole. It felt like in that moment, of course, you know, didn't end up working out like I'm saying it might have. But you know what I'm saying, right, Ryan? Yeah, no, it no, it one hundred percent felt that way. I would one hundred percent agree with you. I I thought, and because largely, I mean, we'll talk about it here in a second. But Tennessee hasn't responded to adversity well many times the entire season, and you got fifty minutes to flush losing a game in pretty brutal fashion. I think Griffin Merritt said, you know, we felt like we handed them the game and then come out and play. So you're right, it it did feel that way. I will say uh, we're talking costly pitching decisions. Nothing into Tony Vitello's tenure will. For a while, we'll compete with keeping Chase Burns in, in Game 3 of the Super Regional against Notre Dame. I mean, it cost him a chance to go to Omaha and have one of the greatest teams in the history of college baseball. But uh, you're right. That that was uh, – it proved pretty costly, and you're right. At the time, you know, of course, it's a doubleheader, so we don't talk to Vitello or any of the players until after the second game. And, and obviously, you win Game 3 in hand, handed, handedly, so all those guys were very positive and in a very good mood. But you're right. It, it felt like it could – vastly once again flip the script of a series and the last road series being the one in Georgia Tony Vitello also made some pitching decisions that were were costly in that one and it felt like all right you're gonna have two straight road SEC series where Tennessee wins the opener and had a great chance to pick up another win and one pitching you know decision mistake and uh things backfiring obviously it's not all on Tony Vitello that Chase Burns was bad it's not all at on Tony Vitello that Christian Moore couldn't field a ground ball uh, down in Athens a couple weeks ago. But it felt like those, once again, that mistake uh, or decision was going to come back and cost Tennessee in a really bad way. But I think you've got to give a lot of credit to Tennessee as a whole, but particularly Drew Beam for making sure that didn't happen because uh, just go ahead and lead us into game three here. Tennessee's offense did nothing early in game three. <laughs> Beam kept them in the fight. And yep. finally they got a little something going and it was an avalanche uh, against the South Carolina bullpen that uh, is not very good and has had a lot of injuries. Yeah, as I mentioned, it looked bleak after South Carolina quickly jumped all over Chase Burns to win that game. But like Ryan just said, Beam comes out and has a very clutch start. Clutch is the exact word. He wasn't like super yeah. shut down dominant, but he was clutch. He worked around trouble many, many innings. I mean, he could have gone the full 7-2, but the Vols scored six runs in the top of the seven. It took so long that he didn't throw a complete game. But Drew Beam, a tremendous bounce-back performance after a bad past two weeks and a crucial performance for Tennessee. As Ryan mentioned, Tennessee didn't score any runs in the first three innings. Looked similarly to game one of the doubleheader where the offense was going to struggle again. But then they got a big fourth inning. RBI sack fly from Zane Denton. Had a big two-run double from... Maui Ahuna, or excuse me, it was a RBI single from Zane Denton and a big two-run double from Maui Ahuna later in the inning. They score four in the fourth, and at that moment with how Drew Beam was pitching, you had to have felt good about Tennessee's chances to win that game, but Drew Beam, he gets all the flowers for this game. I know the offense scored 12 runs, but man, Drew Beam was the MVP for Tennessee's series-winning win here. Yeah, and it just felt like, and this is what I was trying to say a second ago, I'm not sure I articulated it well, but it just felt like Tennessee's a little bit of a hangover from the first game in the first couple innings of those games and Drew Beam, whether he sparked him out of it, snapped him out of it, or just kept him in the game until they could turn the page. Uh, I mean, it was crucial. And like you said, it wasn't necessarily dominant. Um, in the second inning, uh, South Carolina had the 
their first two base runners reach. He gets a double play to get out of it. Third inning, there's a leadoff single. Even fourth inning, after Tennessee took the lead, it was he's facing South, the heart of South Carolina's lineup. He gives up a home run to the first batter and then a single up the middle. They did a second batter, and it was like, all right, Tennessee better get the bullpen loose. And he yep. restrained strikeouts to get out of that inning. And then from there, I think is really when he got into a little bit more of a rhythm. So he was really good, and I think that was just really critical in the fact that it gave Tennessee some confidence and it didn't look, it kept things from potentially spiraling, which it could have because uh, Tennessee's offense was, didn't have a, a lot of I'd say competitive bats, but uh, certainly not a lot of base runners and certainly not a lot of hard hit balls in, in the first, or at least the first time through the lineup. Right. Yeah. And as I mentioned, those big swings from Denton and Ahuna were big in the fourth inning. Griffin Merritt had a solo home run and then C Scott put it away in the top of the seventh with a three-run homer at that point, you knew it was over. Two RBI walks ensued, but C. Scott's homer put Tennessee up 10-1. to It put the nail in the coffin for South Carolina, if you will, for the series. They teed off on their bullpen pretty good. But this No love pick... for the Austin, Austin Jaslov, RBI walk? Uh, Take Austin uh, Jaslov gets in. I mean, yeah, okay. Hey, did you want me to focus on that? Around... Uh, no. no, I didn't, but it, it was that showed out well the game went for Tennessee and that how much that seventh inning got away from South Carolina that yeah, just, Austin Jaslov uh, was getting in a bat. And he got an RBI sure. walk. Yeah. You can tell Austin Jaslov's been a great locker room guy this season. Tony Vitello gives him any opportunity he can when the you know moment presents itself. So, yeah, that was how the Vols' final run of the regular season scored was an Austin Jaslov RBI walk. But, Ryan, the big takeaway, obviously, from this entire weekend is the starting pitching. I mean, if these three do this, all three could have gone complete games. Chase Olander stays in and gets around that one-out single, finishes the game, could have done that. If Tennessee's offense isn't at the plate for what was like, what, 35 minutes in the top of the seventh, Drew Beam probably finishes that game. And, of course, we talked about how Andrew Lindsay could have finished that game. This was incredible. They didn't use Seth Halverson or Cannon Tool all weekend long. Both are very, very fresh going into Hoover. You know, Russell, A.J. Russell, Bryce Jenkins, and Aaron Combs only threw a combined 28 pitches. If the pitching is like this, Ryan, they're not only Omaha caliber, they have the capability to win it all, but the offensive consistency still remains the issue. Yeah, it does. And again, it's just to your point, the offense can be inconsistent. It's not like it's a lock, but things like this, the offense can be inconsistent. It's like, well, the chips fall where they may. Tennessee's still got a great chance to win a lot of games and make a deep run in the postseason. And uh, it was simply fantastic. Uh, again, Lindsay, you know, I think we kind of know what to expect from Andrew Lindsay. That was his best outing, but he's been consistently really good in the RA in the twos on the season in SEC play. Dolander, it feels like it's just kind of getting better and better and starting to hit his stride. And to me, Drew Beam was the big one. I mean, you entered the first weekend all year that Drew Beam wasn't going into the series locked in as the game three starter. It was TB, TB uh, available, TB to be determined uh, for Tennessee. And it felt like, in, in some sorts, like if Drew Beam was bad again for a third straight start, I'm not sure we see him much the rest of the season. I'm sure we see him yeah. at some point, but I don't think he's getting a, a bunch of big opportunities the rest of the way. So not I think starting was, again. Yeah. Yeah. No, not starting again, unless it's, you know, game five of a regional or something like that. You get down the line. Uh, but he was really, really good, really, really solid. He did what Drew Beam uh, does well. Uh, locating his pitches, having this command. So uh, to me, that was maybe the biggest story of it, just because the 
the alternative would have been so different for how we would have viewed Drew Beam going into the postseason. But uh, you're right, and I think you hit the nail on the head. You have a quick turnaround here going to Tuesday, and it's not a midweek Tuesday game where you're going to throw Xander Seacrest to start for an inning and eight different other pitchers and a bunch of guys that don't pitch on the weekends. Uh, you need someone really good or really solid in what's going to be a pivotal game for Tennessee to try to host against Texas A&M. So you have Seth Alverson, you have Camden Sewell. I would expect Seth Alverson to start. Uh, we'll obviously see what happens by the time you all are listening. There might be an announcement from Tennessee on that. So stay tuned on RockyTopInsider.com. We'll have something up on that if that's the case. But uh, you have both those guys healthy. Uh, and you mentioned that A.J. Russell just threw a couple pitches. Kirby Canales, Xander Seacrest didn't throw a single pitch over the weekend. Uh, Tennessee, you know, outside of Chase Burns and then its weekend starters should have just about a full repertoire of guys available uh, Tuesday afternoon at Hoover. Going back to game three of the series, were you surprised Drew Beam started? Yeah, I really? was. Who do, who do you yeah. think was going to start? I thought it would be Halverson or Russell. Yeah. I mean, I but, wasn't stunned by it, but I, I was surprised by it. Yeah. Drew Beam just has a great mentality. Like, just to do that, that was pretty impressive. A big story of the weekend, for sure. As Ryan mentioned, Tennessee plays Texas A&M. Game one of Hoover on Tuesday. That's the 7 seed versus the 10 seed. Winner will play number two Arkansas on Wednesday. And it's double elimination after Tuesday. So if Tennessee loses on Tuesday, they're done. Texas A&M loses, same thing. But double elimination begins on Wednesday. Texas A&M, obviously Tennessee played them earlier in the season. Second SEC series of the season. They swept them in Knoxville. What's your thoughts on this first-round matchup in Hoover for the Vols? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a fine matchup. You know, obviously, they had a lot of success against A&M in the regular season. Uh, you know, one thing I would say is A&M is playing for a ton. They are right on the bubble right now. Uh, I mean, it really could go either way for them uh, of whether they make the NCAA tournament or not. So they're going to have a ton to play for. I'm sure they'll be aggressive with their pitching. And it is a team that's playing at least better than they were earlier in the season. They uh, beat Mississippi State in the series this last weekend. They had lost two out of three to Alabama the week before, but it beat Florida uh, two out of three to the prior week. So it's an A&M team that, not that they've all of a sudden became superstars or one of the best teams in the conference, but they are playing better than when they were in Knoxville uh, back in, what was that, mid-March, the, the second SEC series of the season. So it's a different yeah. team. It's a team that's going to have a lot to play for, uh, but certainly so is Tennessee, and certainly they have a uh, pitching staff that's going to be pretty fresh going into uh, – their first game in Hoover, game number two of the of the weekend or of the weekend Hoover, and I don't know if you've uh, checked yet, but uh, projected uh, rain for Tuesday in Hoover. Luckily, the rest Lovely. of the week there's not, but uh, we might be continuing our streak of, of rain delay series or rain delay games. It's a Hoover tradition. Yeah, nothing, nothing like first pitch going out at ten o two p.m. and you're like, okay, it's gonna be a long night. Or 11.02 p.m. Eastern for those watching at home, even. Yeah, at least Tennessee's on the, the morning half of the bracket this year. So yeah, someone might have to deal with that, uh, but I don't <laughs> think it's going to be us uh, this week. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, they play Arkansas if they win the game. What's the key for Tennessee to make a Hoover run, Ryan? I, we talked about last week how maybe it's not too significant as far as regional hosting goes, but we mentioned today that Hoover maybe has a little bit more significance given the log jam of SEC teams looking to host. What's the key for Tennessee to make, you know, to get two wins here in Hoover, which is, I think, would lock them in to a host spot? Win the first game. You know, and that's that's really simple, but Tennessee's pitching depth is so good, and 
the Hoover Met plays to what Tennessee wants to do on the mound, which is throw strikes and let the chips fall where they may. We may give up a couple solo homers. That's okay. Well, it's a big ballpark. And as you know, obviously we've talked about left field's a little bit of a question mark for Tennessee defensively. They've been really good with Vinsley and center and Scott and right. So, you know, if Tennessee wins a game or beats Texas A&M, I, you know, I think they'll win a second game. I would be pretty surprised if they don't. They just have so much pitching, more pitching than any team in the conference. Um, but it's one game. It's against a team that, you know, while I think Tennessee's better than, it's not it's baseball. It's not some huge, huge difference. And it's a team that's going to be super motivated to play. So there's no guarantee uh, by any means uh, that you're going to win the first game or even that you're heavy favorites in the first game. So uh, I guess by that admission, it's just to get Camden Sewell and Seth Halverson pitching well because of Camden Sewell and Seth Halverson, I'm sure they'll both pitch uh, on Tuesday. If they pitch well, I think Tennessee will have a great chance to win. And if Tennessee beats Texas A&M, I think they'll probably, uh, you know, I predict them to make a run to the semifinals on Saturday. I think they'll at least win one more game and, and make it to Friday. You think I'm right in my thought that, you know, obviously one win over Texas A&M helps a lot as far as hosting goes, but two is a lock. Like if they win two games this week, they're in. They're hosting. I don't agree with that. I'm not that not to say that they won't host if they win two games, but I just can't say that it's a lock. I mean, you go into the week. Kentucky, better RPI than Tennessee. Auburn, more SEC wins. Alabama, better RPI. South Carolina, better RPI. You know, there's just a lot of teams that are on the bubble. I think going into this week of the French hosting teams in the SEC, Tennessee's kind of at the bottom of that. I would have them ahead of South Carolina, and South Carolina's dropped six of their last seven series. It's hard for me to imagine that they're going to host. But I put Kentucky, Alabama, and Auburn ahead of Tennessee going into this week. And mm. uh, if I was Tennessee, I'd be rooting for Kentucky to beat Alabama on Tuesday. Uh, if that happens and then Tennessee wins two games, I definitely think they would jump Alabama. Um, but I have a hard time thinking they're going to jump Kentucky. And, and Auburn certainly goes into this week with more SEC wins and is just playing as well as just about any team in the conference. So you think Kentucky's probably set. If they lose to Bama, it's not as huge as for Tennessee as if Bama were to lose to Kentucky because Tennessee has a better chance of hopping Bama, right? Yeah, I think I think Alabama and Tennessee enter this week. Again, I'd give Alabama the slightly ahead of Tennessee, but it's pretty Why? neck and neck. Just because they're better in RPI and strength of schedule and all that? Yes, uh-huh. And yeah. same SEC win total. I mean, RPI is typically the metric that's used a lot by the tournament, and Kentucky's got the black magic of somehow being number two in RPI in the country. I don't, I don't know how that happens, how you're 16 and 14 in SEC play and number two in RPI. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but because of that, I think they're pretty locked in. And, I mean, I think some of the projections have even had them as number 11 or number 12 straight up. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, but Tennessee's got a chance, but I just don't think it's maybe as simple as it looked like it might be. And certainly, I, you know, Alabama and, and Auburn sweeping last weekend made it a lot harder for Tennessee. I believe if Tennessee were to beat AM, lose to Arkansas, then they would play the loser of LSU versus Georgia or South Carolina. So. I'm pretty sure correct. that is correct. So going to be an opponent the Vols have seen before this season in the first three days, regardless. However, the chips fall pretty much because if they win, win if they were to beat Arkansas on Wednesday, they don't play till Friday, correct? Correct. Yeah, there that Thursday is uh, is the day off. Hoover knowledge coming in strong here at the end of the podcast. Right? Wait, wait. Correct. I think they play on Thursday and it's Friday. They would have off. So they go. Of that. So if they beat AM, beat Arkansas, they still play Thursday. I think they still play Thursday. They win on Thursday. They don't play on Friday, and they come back and play Saturday. Because it's it's, it's be like fun. it's like 
it's like a regional. Once you get past the first game, it is like a regional where you have two four-team tournaments. It's not completely like a regional because it goes back to single elimination at the end. It's the most confusing thing mm. in the world. Uh, but yeah. it's kind of like that where if you you think about it, if you in a regional, if you win your first two games, whoever you just beat in the second game is going to have to win uh, another game just to play you again and then have to beat you twice. That's not the case here. They would just have to beat you once. But that's kind of how it falls where you had that break day after your second game. Uh, of the double elimination portion right on sounds good all right ryan that's gonna do it for this episode of the rocket top inside of press pass special edition podcast do you have anything to add i don't think so i think we hit the all the rpi stuff that was just going to kind of be my note that tennessee is finding a little bit of an uphill battle there uh but again with most of those teams it's at least tight enough that you know a win or two could swing things and uh tennessee could could jump and uh but we'll see. Again, I think the the result you're looking for, uh, besides Tennessee winning, if you're a Tennessee fan, is for Kentucky to beat Alabama. Also, got to mention Jared Dickey, now on the All-SEC second-team roster. Is that right, Ryan? That is right, yeah. In there as as an outfield uh, spot, I think, you know, very well-deserved. Uh, I think he was the only Tennessee player on there. I wasn't surprised by that. You know, I think if – uh, the one that would be curious to me is if Chase Burns has another good outing this weekend, does he maybe get in there as a bullpen guy? But he obviously didn't pitch the Georgia series, so there were some factors working against him there. There really was nobody else in the lineup for Tennessee uh, that had a good chance. But uh, Dickie lands on the second team, very well-deserving. Uh, he's been Tennessee's best best player, most productive player all season, and uh, certainly has been extremely, extremely good in SEC play as well. Mr. RBI single. Brian, what's your favorite thing about Hoover? Tell the people. You've been there multiple times. Best thing about Hoover, Alabama, or slash that area. You can extend to Birmingham, I guess, if you want. Yeah, I mean, for me, the best part about Hoover is my family's there. Uh, that I have my brother and sister-in-law and niece there. I love the event. I, you know, that's obviously the SEC tournament. What's my favorite part of that? It's just super cool, all the all the different fan bases that come. And it's the Hoover Mets, to me, is a really cool stadium. And it's a lot of good baseball. It's a super fun event, super hard event to win. You pull in, there's the RVs and LSU fans tailgating, uh, tailgating and sleeping there and all that good stuff. So it's wild. Uh, to me, it's a ton of fun. Obviously, we kind of talked about it last week. The importance of the SEC tournament, you know, as a, what it does for your seating or as an indicator of what's going to happen in the NCAA tournament, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, but you have the best baseball conference by a long shot in the country, uh, the 12 best teams all in one place for a week uh, competing. And it's a ton of talent. You know, watch a ton of guys that are going to play in the MLB uh, here going forward. And it makes for it makes for a ton of fun. And it's a shout out to the SEC. It's a really well-run event, too, from the media side of things. It, you know, a lot of SEC, not homers, but, you know, just those SEC diehards are like, oh, SEC tournament's a national championship. SEC championship game and football, that's the national championship. Yeah. If there's any sport where that actually holds water, it's kind of like it's baseball, you know, like the SEC tournament is almost like a mini college world series, you know, just given how many teams are so studly. I mean, we're talking about the SEC being 10 teams deep in terms of make or 11 teams deep in terms of making the tournament and 10 teams deep in terms of hosting. So there is just a ton of great SEC baseball teams. That's for sure. Ryan will be in Hoover tomorrow. As he said, he'll have you guys covered for the A&M game. I'll be there on Wednesday and we'll both be there for the rest of the week. We will have 
instant reaction podcast probably about 15 minutes or so after each Tennessee game Wednesday on. If Tennessee does lose to Texas A&M on Tuesday, we'll have a podcast for you guys Monday mid-morning or so. Follow Ryan Shumper at rshump00, that's S-C-H-U-M-P. You can follow me at Jack Foster Media. You can also follow Rocky Top Insider at Rocky Top Insider on all your socials and keep up to date with all things Tennessee sports on rockytopinsider.com. All right, Ryan, I'll see you in a couple of days. Hopefully I don't forget my computer this time because I had to buy that $200 Chromebook last year. So we are going to learn from our mistakes and be better this year. But Ryan, I'll see you in a couple of days, my friend. Sounds great. And everybody, hope you have a great start to an action-packed week this week in the Tennessee world. And as for us, we'll see you in Hoover.